Hey, podcast listeners, before we get into today's episode, we wanted to ask a quick favor for you to like and write a review for Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. This will help others find Simply Put who may be interested in listening. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Simply Put to make sure you don't miss out on any new episodes. Now, on to today's show. You're listening to Simply Put, a podcast from FHN Financial. I'm your host, Will Compernell. We've changed how we live and work since the beginning of the pandemic, and commercial real estate has experienced some of the biggest impacts. Asset valuations have declined in the places people frequent less often than they did in 2019. An upcoming wave of refinancing also comes up against much higher interest rates. On today's episode, we talk with Landon Williams, Senior Vice President of Capital Markets at Cushman & Wakefield, about the important aspects of the CRE landscape right now and what to look out for in the year ahead. Stay tuned. Coming up soon, our interview with Landon Williams, Senior Vice President of Capital Markets at Cushman & Wakefield. But first, a quick market update. With less than two weeks before the next FOMC decision, the most recent data reports have reinforced market expectations for the Fed to leave rates unchanged in September. The August employment report, along with the latest JOLTS data, showed enough labor market cooling that the Fed can exercise patience in deciding if they need to raise rates anymore this cycle. PCE inflation also showed the second consecutive month of slowing. Treasury yields fell from their mid-August cycle peaks before rising again most of this week. Some yield movements last month were somewhat outsized because of lower trading volumes, which should pick up again now that the summer has officially ended. We see two-year Treasury yields correctly priced right now around 5%, but expect some cheapening up to as high as 5.3% next quarter. At 4.3%, tens are at the top part of the range, but some forces do give upward pressure at the long end of the curve. Specifically, persistent federal deficits mean higher Treasury issuance for the foreseeable future, growing confidence the economy has avoided a recession for now, and some seasonally appropriate higher corporate issuance that can compete with longer-term treasuries. Saudi Arabia and Russia announced plans for lower oil production and lower oil exports, respectively. West Texas Intermediate approached its highest point since November of last year, trading at almost $87 per barrel. The oil trajectory the next year is unclear, especially with the sluggish Chinese economy so far keeping global demand under control. But the news does give a reminder that there are lingering upside risks to headline inflation through higher energy prices. That's all for the market update. Now, our interview with Landon Williams. Our guest today is Landon Williams, Senior Vice President of Capital Markets at Cushman & Wakefield. Landon, thank you for coming on the podcast. Hey, Will. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Our topic today is commercial real estate and how it fits into the macroeconomic landscape the next 6 to 12 months. Um, so I think CRE certainly started getting more attention after March bank tensions, put everything under a magnifying glass um, and all the different potential stresses for banks. But... As I see it, a lot of the important aspects were coming together even before then. So Landon, I 
consider the increasing relevance, the increasing uh, attention to CRE um, coming from two main drivers. But I want to I want to get your your input or feedback on whether you think there are any other big picture things people should keep in mind. Um, so the first force is the pandemic shift in the ways that we work and live, um, where we spend our time. Of course, this caused a lot of asset values to change. Um, the, the kind of most obvious example is, uh, let's say, the urban cores of, of downtown um, areas and cities where, where people are, are now working elsewhere. The second force is much higher interest rates. And, and I think this goes beyond even just the Fed's rapid rate hikes the last uh, year and a half or so. So for me, it goes back to 2018, 2019, when the Fed was engaging in a so-called mid-cycle adjustment. They started modestly cutting rates. And so there were all of these loans that were refinanced. And then five years later, which is the end of this year and the beginning of next year, those loans are now going to mature and they're coming up against this landscape of much higher interest rates and some of those asset valuations having declined. So when we think about the big picture for why commercial real estate is really important, why it might come under distress right now, is there anything else that people should keep in mind? You know, it's interesting. I, I mean, I think you hit really two of the primary factors there, but to sort of counter that, that's just something worth mentioning is uh, there's still almost unprecedented amounts of dry powder that's earmarked for real estate. Uh, so it's, it's you kind of got three headwinds, but you still have this, this, this capital that that's kind of out there and it, you know, it's just something to be considered and as, as part of any, any dialogue in commercial real estate right now. When you use that term dry powder, can you elaborate exactly on what that means? Yeah. So a lot of investors, whether it be private capital or institutional, certainly, certainly private capital, institutional, maybe less so because they, they have to deploy capital, uh, you know, kind of all along the way, but a lot of your investors, they've been storing up. They've been waiting for the other shoe to drop on this. Some thought maybe COVID, you know, 2020, it was going to happen. Really didn't for the most part. Then as you referenced this 2017, 2018, even 2019, as these real low interest rate environment loans were done and they're starting to come up on maturation, investors have been waiting for this. And it's almost kind of like sharks in the water. They smell, they smell blood and they're, they're waiting for it to fall. That money's just, just sitting there and uh, it's earmarked towards real estate. They're ready to go just as soon as the distress really starts to hit. We're starting to see a little bit of it now, but I think by all accounts, we're really looking kind of Q4 and into all of 24 is really where that, that wave, if it's coming, where that's when it's going to come. That's really interesting, this idea that capital is ready to be deployed, um, because I would think that given the climate right now, especially for, for let's say, regional banks, there could be some risk aversion to lending um, for commercial real estate. So as far as you can tell, are banks still lending? If not banks, is anyone else? Or is there really not as much need for CRE lending as people might think because of that dry powder that you mentioned? Yeah. So a lot goes into that question. So as a blanket statement, not 100% true, but as a blanket statement, banks are really shy on lending on CRE right now, particularly certain asset classes, which we can cover. But right now, uh, after what's going on this year, 
a lot of the banks are really looking to load up on deposits and have been, you know, real skittish on CRE lending for right now. In fact, I, I had a lunch with a, a lender yesterday, a good sized regional bank, and he basically said, hey, we're, we're done. Like, we're not lending on any CRE right now. He said, now, I will say the caveat to that is, is if we have a, you know, an investor who comes and says, hey, we're going to move $50 million worth of deposits over to your bank and we need a $30 million loan, then we would do that as an example. At the same time, we're seeing opportunity out there with this dry powder. So these investors, which typically would have been the equity in the deal, and they would have sought to, the, you know, in the capital side to go find a traditional lender. I just got off the phone with an institutional investor who's now looking at being the lender on a deal. So they are, uh, they've, they've pivoted, you know, at least temporarily pivoted to the idea of, hey, listen, we, we might come in and, and be part of the debt stack for any, any given deal. And so there's all sorts of, when you talk about debt right now, CRE, you're looking at all sorts of different players who are getting involved on the private lending side. Something that I have certainly come across when, I, when I've read uh, and heard people talk about commercial real estate is just how hyper-local a lot of the conditions can be. So when, when economists or, or the Federal Reserve think about um, the macro economy, they, they do often think about the labor market as a whole, uh, you know, nationwide, uh, instead of focusing on the regional differences. But when it comes to commercial real estate, it, it, it seems like the, the circumstances are so different between uh, different regions, different metropolitan areas. Right now, what cities are faring particularly well or poorly in terms of commercial real estate? And can you make any general trends, any, any observations that are causing some cities to adapt better than others or worse than others? Yeah, so Will, great point you know, with regards to when we talk about these macro trends in commercial real estate, we, we ultimately, the conversation has got to come back to kind of two very specific points. One is, you know, when you talk about macro trend, you got to keep in mind that it's still very local. Uh, and then number two is it's still very dependent upon asset class. So hotels and offices are not the same as industrial multifamily right now. Retail is not the same as the others. You know, so all that has to be considered specific to your question what we're seeing is commercial real estate, the, the impact of kind of the current, I don't know, calm, if you will, in the market is maybe muted in the, you know, the Sunbelt states or, or where you're seeing a lot of population growth. You're seeing all this migration of, of people that's been well documented out of California in the Northeast to uh, Florida, Tennessee, the Carolinas, you know, even over into Arizona and, and uh, Denver. And so it, where you're seeing the population growth, we're seeing much more activity compared to, you know, the Northeast or uh, maybe California or, or some of the other states. That's interesting. You, you know, you, you bring up how commercial real estate doesn't just mean office buildings. I think that uh, when people picture CRE, it's just uh, the high rise office buildings, but it also means retail, hotels, and multifamily housing. So that's another dimension to throw into the mix, not just geography. Right now, is there, uh, you know, what, what can we say about those, those different parts of CRE? Is, is anything staying pretty strong or particularly under distress nationwide? Um, and I kind of just want to throw an idea in there that might inspire some thoughts, and that is could high-rise office buildings as we've known them for the last, I don't know, few decades, 
Could they go the same direction as shopping malls? So as people change the way they shopped, maybe more online or maybe more uh, to strip malls or to small downtown centers, shopping malls, they've become a, a lot less popular. Uh, is it possible that the high-rise office buildings go the same way and they really won't exist as we have thought of them the last few decades? Yeah, quite clearly over the last you know handful of years, the darlings of the dance have been multifamily and industrial. There, there are some similarities as to, as to why that's so, is you have increasing demand and a lack of supply. So it has resulted in significant rental rate growth. So as, as even more and more players got involved in these two asset classes, you were able with such low cost of capital to buy these deals at very frothy prices. The investors are betting on you know, rental increases. You might not actually have a, a, a big return in year one, but years two, three, four, you're realizing that return because of the lack of supply and the strong demand. Now, on the other side of that that we've seen is hospitality, hotels, and, and also office. In the middle, it feels like the best kept secret has been retail. And, and retail, you kind of have to you know, d- divide it up a little bit. Shopping malls to neighborhood retail centers to single tenant net lease, you know, they all get grouped into retail. But really, if you recall, five years ago or you know, even into COVID, we thought retail was going to be dead as we ever knew it. And that asset class has really persevered. In fact, the, the biggest problem in retail right now is we just don't have enough space for retailers to go. You know, so if you talk to any retail leasing broker or, or someone on, that's involved with tenant representation on the retail side, you know, they're going to tell you that the, we have retailers wanting to expand. There's just a lack of supply, particularly with your small bay neighborhood retail or maybe your uh, larger retail properties that uh, are more experiential in nature. Those types that has persevered and uh, is really going strong, but just doesn't catch a lot of the headlines. Now, to get into the office discussion, we talked about different geographic areas. You know, a lot of your gateway markets or your larger markets where, you know, all these humongous high rise office buildings it is clearly and COVID, the pendulum completely swung towards remote work. The big question mark right now for everybody is how far is the pendulum going to swing back toward the way it used to be? Nobody really believes it's going to be exactly the way it used to be, where everybody was going to the office five days a week. But, it, it, you know, is it going to go back to three days a week? Is it going to go back to four? Is it, are we going to see uh, still some hybrid? You know, what, what is it going to look like? And that's still the big question mark, not only from investors, but particularly from lenders. And, you know, with office, talk about some of the conversion and, and looking at you know, shopping malls, which a lot of these shopping malls have been or are continuing to be transitioned into a higher and better use, whether it be industrial or you know, some other form of, you know, of use for the shopping mall. You know, office, we're certainly seeing that. I think it gets more tension than uh, is actually really happening out there. For example, you know, the big thing we hear all the time with office buildings is, hey, can we make it into a multifamily? So if we're, if we're tight on multifamily supply and you still have demand for multifamily over the foreseeable future, particularly with a, a lack of supply coming on board in the single family world, you know, we still think multifamily is going to be a strong asset class with a lot of demand and, and still potentially a lack of supply. Could these office buildings be transitioned into multifamily or, or mixed use? And the answer is definitely yes, it's happening. It's definitely happening. However, it's it's not quite as easy 
as maybe it's, it's made to sound because there's a couple things going in there. One is just the functionality of the building. Sometimes these office buildings have floor plates such that it's just a very hard, very difficult transition from a design perspective to get it from office to multifamily. Maybe you have big floor plates or uh, your, your ceiling height is uh, you know, not quite right or w- whatever. Uh, it just doesn't function that well. And then secondly, from an underwriting perspective, it can be very difficult to make that transition because oftentimes you, know, you just don't have a, a completely vacant office building. A lot of times you might have 50% occupied office building or maybe it, you know, more or less of that. And, and so you're, you may have tenants that have eight years left on their leases. So you're, you're having to think about buying them out or, uh, you know, trying to, trying to line it up. So when you, when you go into the acquisition of it, you're having to acquire the office building with rent in place. The seller is obviously going to want, you know, some compensation for that cash flow. Then you're going to have to go buy out that cash flow and then the cost to retrofit it into, into multifamily. So it, it's definitely happening. We see it seemingly more in your larger markets, but even in, uh, in some of your class B markets, like where I'm located in Memphis, we're, we've got four or five projects right now that are in the process of transitioning, which formerly it was 100% office, are now going into predominantly multifamily or maybe some retail on the on the bottom floor with some with multifamily, uh, you know, up top. So it's happening, but it can be very difficult. I want to dig more uh, into that idea of re- repurposing commercial real estate uh, for new uses, because um, to your point, if, if people are not going to go into these office buildings five days a week like they used to and they're working from home more, and uh, the cost of living for housing is so high, it seems like a really obvious thing would be to repurpose a lot of those, those high-rises into apartment buildings. And I get that there are uh, physical obstacles. Do zoning regulations uh, play any part in that, in making the transition um, a little clunkier? Because I know this, this might sound like a, a, a silly question, but if we see a vacant storefront or a vacant office building and yet people are desperate to find affordable housing, it, it seems like there's a market failure there. What is stopping um, those spaces from being filled by people who might want to use it for, for something else? Yeah, yeah, zoning is certainly a good question. You know, I think for the most part, from the local government's perspective, I suspect that a lot of the times, they're, they're, everybody can kind of see the writing on the wall with a lot of these office buildings. And they're looking at tax revenue. They're looking at, you know, so I think... Uh, Everyone is incentivized, including the uh, government officials, you know, who are who are looking at zoning. And I think everybody's incentivized to bring life back to these buildings. I think that it might take time and have to go through the process, but that really shouldn't be the main obstacle when it comes to this. I think it really gets back to, you know, what we talked about with just functional challenges and really the financial underwriting you know, to the, the cost to make it happen, does, does the, the rent, the future rents, can you still get the return that the investor needs? In some cases, yes, because it's happening. In other cases, potentially not. It can be very difficult. That makes sense to me. So in Midtown Manhattan or the Loop in Chicago, um, if people no longer work there as much, uh, it, it's not really obvious to um, a potential property manager that putting the investment to repurpose this into multifamily housing um, is going to give enough of a return, right? There, there's still uncertainty about how the dust will settle over the next, uh, you know, what what the new normal is in terms of our work, um, our work and at home uh, lifestyle. So, so that makes uh, total sense to me. 
I think a big question for a lot of our listeners is who owns the commercial real estate that's performing poorly? In other words, if something breaks in CRE, who is going to have the most exposure? Good question. I think it really covers the gambit. Back when uh, the good old days of 2021, you know, 22, and even even as you referenced earlier in the 2017-18, the investors that were leveraging everything to the max uh, and really taking advantage, uh, you know, at the time of that low interest rate environment and the you know a lot of the LTVs, loan to values that they were able to get in on deals were you know maybe much higher than they are today. And property values were higher. So a, a lot of those investors, both on the private capital, uh, you know, anywhere from small to even larger funds, are, are I think are the ones that are going to feel it the most. Uh, a lot of times, you're, you're, some of your institutional, particularly your REITs that are uh, a lot more conservatively invested, you know, maybe not as much, but still to certainly to some extent as we've seen. But yeah, I think it's the it's the ones that were uh, really taking advantage of that of the the debt that we could get the you know in the in the recent past that will be feeling it the most. Like for example, I'm in the middle of writing a, a white paper right now just to demonstrate this. But you know, someone that bought a uh, let's call it a thirty million dollar office building back in 2018. And it was 90% occupied. It had a great, uh, you know, weighted average lease term of the for the tenancy, and you know, a lot of term left on the leases. And they were able to get in at call it a some interest rate with a three in front of it, and you know an LTV of call it 75 or 80. And you know their valuation was was at its peak or near its peak at that point. Now fast forward, it was a five year term. They're coming up for you know maybe later this year or in the next year coming up for their, their loan maturity and they're looking at now it's 75% occupied on paper but in reality it's 50% occupied of people actually coming to the office or maybe less and their interest rate is close to 8% their LTV is going to be more like 50 or 55% you know so they they've got a uh, they've got a, you know a decision to make they they might have to just the proverbial give the keys back to the lender. Or they may have to sell, or they may have to put in a bunch of cash if they believe in the deal. You know, a, a sort of a, a new iteration of it, a good business plan for how to to restabilize it. They might refinance and figure out how to put that extra cash in to make it happen. So, anyway, it's it's really those types of owners that are and are going to be the most affected or impacted by, you know, in the upcoming near future. What sorts of other financial you know, maneuvering, for lack of a better term, can be done um, if this this wall of maturity comes at the end of this year, beginning of this year, uh, and let's say we have uh, these assets that that have really lower valuations, no one really wants them, um, and so refinancing doesn't look like the best idea, uh, but also no one else really wants this space. Um, you know, is, is there going to be a lot of extend and pretend? Is there anything that lenders and, and the buyers of these properties can do to smooth out this wave to at least try to see if in, a, in more favorable conditions um, they'd be able to refinance or, or pay the loan? With the wave of maturities that we has been well documented, particularly in office, these lenders, a lot of them, in fact, most of them are not prepared from a human capital standpoint to take on all this that, that might be coming back their way. They, you know, can handle to some extent, but uh, probably not to the fullest extent. I think you're going to see a little bit of everything. I think you're going to see some lenders that do extend and pretend. So effectively, uh, you know, pretend like the maturity date wasn't what it originally was and extend it for a year or, or however long. 
to kind of smooth out their flow of when they might be getting these back. And then it also depends on each asset and the story of each asset. So if there's a, if there, if it's a, you know, a, an office building that really we don't see any light at the end of the tunnel for whatever reason, it's just a, an area of town that, you know, probably not likely to have a lot of influx of office users come back or whatever, you know, then, you know, you'll probably see the the borrower more willing to just want to give the keys back to the lender. But however, if there's a strong story to it, then, and both the, the lender and the borrower kind of believe in the next iteration, hey, this, this, we can breathe new life into this, you know, still as an office use, but we've got a, a good business plan in place to win tenancy, or maybe there's just something unique about that property, you know, then they're, you're more likely to see the, the lender and borrower work it out. A lot of it will depend on also, will just the regulators for the lenders and what kind of uh, flexibility uh, the lenders have to work this out. With the flexibility you just talked about with potential uh, financial maneuvering, the repurposing of space into new use, um, and then also I think you you, you talked about the underappreciated strength in retail, uh, it sounds like you're bullish uh, on CRE compared with a lot of the, the doomsdayer um, analysis that, that I read in the news. Um, so do you feel that CRE will pose any major systemic distress the next year? The answer is, uh, in my mind, is undoubtedly yes. There's going to be some distress. Uh, at the same time, it's going to look a lot different than the market you know, 15 years ago, uh, coming out of the Great Recession, where there was no really no money or access to it. The big difference here is the distress is coming from a sort of a, a financially engineered distress. With, you know, that we talked about the Fed and the interest rate movement. You know, the current rates where they are, historically speaking, are not high. It's it's really the speed at which the rates were brought to where they are. It, it really stunted the market. In other words, it's it's less about where the rates are and, and more about how fast they got there. And so that has stunned the market or, or frozen the market. But there's still it's, you know, it's odd because you've got all this, you know, all this money that, out there that we've discussed, you know, ready to go. So, uh, yes, there's going to be distress uh, at the same time, kind of similar to what we talked about with, with the retail asset class. It was supposed to be dead as we know it. And it has totally pivoted and reinvented itself and is, you know, as strong as I've seen it in my career, you know, just about any way you look at it. I, I think just in, in general, the office market or, or as a broad statement, the commercial real estate as a as a uh, investment alternative is going to be strong, is going to persevere primarily because you've just got so much cash, you know, ready and, and waiting to to be reinvested into into the asset. We talked about how CRE, a lot of the circumstances are so hyper-local, which makes it difficult to look at one financial market indicator, one economic indicator to see um, how things are faring in this environment. So when you think about monitoring commercial real estate and the distresses you just talked about for the next year, what are some of the key things that you're keeping an eye on and you think investors should also keep an eye on? I would tell you a couple of things. One is just continue to look at that population growth, uh, you know, or population migration, if you will. And, you know, look at where, where are people moving out of, where are people moving into? Just because people are moving out of somewhere doesn't mean there's not opportunity. It's just to, to note what the opportunity may look like. You know, people moving into uh, certain areas of the country 
is you know probably more obvious where the opportunity is but at the same time that's that's where a lot of investment dollars will flow so kind of population growth or migration is a key aspect key component and then just keeping an eye on you know these loan maturity dates that is you have plenty of well capitalized owners investors with a loan maturity coming up they still have decisions to make and whether or not to main, you know, hold on and refinance or to sell. And uh, when you're looking at that as an investor with capital ready to deploy, I think that is probably the number one opportunity is, you know, opportunities that may, may come because of uh, an upcoming loan maturity. Landon Williams, thanks for coming on the podcast. Hey, thank you, Will. Enjoyed it. That was Landon Williams, Senior Vice President of Capital Markets at Cushman and Wakefield. A couple things really stood out to me about that discussion with Landon. First, there's the idea that firms are sitting on what he called dry powder, or surplus capital that can help cushion the blow from refinancing at higher rates and declining asset valuations. The second thing is that repurposing certain spaces can help bring value to areas of distressed commercial real estate, even if the transition is not immediate. Looking ahead, the CPI report next week will be the last inflation data the Fed sees before its upcoming decision on September 20th. Market expectations are firmly showing the Fed will leave rates unchanged at that meeting, though the odds of another rate hike sometime this year are still roughly a coin toss. With a new summary of economic projections and dot plot released at the meeting this month, all eyes will be on what FOMC participants project for Fed policy the remainder of this year. The last dot plot, in June, projected rates to reach the 5.5% to 5.75% range, which would mean another hike in either November or December. What the dot plot won't answer are the two most important questions for the next stages of Fed policy. How long will the Fed hold at the terminal rate, and just how rapidly will they cut rates? Because the dot plot only shows year-end projections, there's a big question mark over what happens in between. Markets are expecting cuts to begin in the second quarter of next year, though we think Fed communication so far suggests a much longer pause. Along with CPI, we'll see the August retail sales report and August PPI next week. All of these reports will come during the Fed's customary pre-meeting silent period, so they're much more likely to shape FOMC economic projections than impact the September decision. That's all for today's episode. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Comperl, macro strategist with FHN Financial. This episode was edited by Bill Stanfield. Don't forget to like and subscribe to Simply Put wherever you get your podcasts. Email simplyput at fhnfinancial.com with any questions, comments, or concerns. This podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation with respect to the purchase or sale of any security. Views expressed herein accurately reflect the speaker's personal views about the data, news, trends, events, etc. discussed herein or any subject securities or issuers. No part of their compensation was, is, or will be, directly or indirectly, related to any specific recommendations or views expressed. FHN Financial, through First Horizon Bank or its affiliates, offers investment products and services. Investment products are not FDIC insured, have no bank guarantee, and may lose value.